You know, one of the uh, sad things in life is when you realize that you have an enemy. Everyone, no matter how kind you are, no matter how nice you are, you'll have enemies in life. And I remember my first enemy. His name was Clay. And where I'm, you know, I was a tall and, and, and skinny person. He was short and stout, like one big solid muscle. And uh, the reason we were enemies is because we liked the same woman. Um, Sherry Smith was the cutest first grader. Um, she had long hair, these cute little freckles. She wore a rabbit fur jacket. I don't know if y'all had those in California. Those are illegal. Like PETA had already come again. Uh, anyway, that was... Um, th- and, and so my, my best friend Teddy and I would be out on the playground playing our favorite uh, game, which was imitating our favorite TV show, which was Dukes of Hazard, And uh, so it would be Bo and Luke, and Sherry would uh, want to be Daisy. I don't recommend um, watching this. But uh, anyway, um, Clay, uh, I think, was jealous because Sherry uh, wanted to be with us. And so I remember him coming back and uh, coming and shoving me in the back and me going home and telling my dad this. And I remember my dad saying, like, Son, everyone has enemies. Even Jesus had enemies. Now, the, it turns into not so sad a story because later on, Clay and I would both become friends as we were both performers, and he'd like sing country music and I'd sing pop music. And anyway, uh, but today we're in Ezra four, and what we're gonna see is that every great work of God has enemies. That anytime you want to do something with the Lord, you're going to find opposition. And that's where we are today in verse 1. It says, when the enemies of Judah, and Judah is a tribe of Israel, and Benjamin, that's another tribe, heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build, because like you... We seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, let me just give you some background. I'm building week upon week, so if you have missed a message, I encourage you to go back on our website to our podcast as we've been in this series called Revive Us, a series on biblical revival out of the book of Ezra. So if you remember week one, we talked about this pagan king named Cyrus who wasn't an Israelite, but... He was touched by the Lord, and so he used his time, his resources, and his influence to start in motion a move of God. He was a very unlikely person. We said unlikely people can actually trigger a move of God. The second week, we said it's not just about one person, though. It spills into many, and so we watched... 42,000 Israelites leave their comfort and go on a journey of faith back to their desolate homeland. They had been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, but when they were given this opportunity by Cyrus, they'd left the comforts of their life. And we said, that's what we are supposed to be like. We're supposed to be people going on a journey of faith. Well, then last week we saw the first thing they did when they arrived back in their homeland. It was a desolate wasteland. It was destroyed. And instead of focusing on amassing their own wealth and their own comforts, what did they do? They built an altar of worship. Now, this week, what we see is they're about to rebuild the temple. I mean, who would be upset with someone for just wanting to to build a place of worship? And yet, immediately, opposition starts. And it starts through an unlikely, or what we think is unlikely, through these people 
who actually aren't the people of God. They were from a, a different place that actually worshiped other gods. And what they said is, hey, let us come and do this together. Can I just tell you that the first enemy of revival is partnering with the world. This is what the Bible says. It says in James 4, 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, what I'm not saying today is Christians, be jerks to everyone else that's not in the church, right? Don't be nice. Don't say hi to your neighbor, right? No, that, that's not what this is at all. What friendship with the world is, is it's loving the things the world values, like money, sex, power, fame. And when Christians do that, when the people of God do that, it dilutes pure love for Jesus. I'll never forget my first time I ever went to a, a Christian conference, to a big youth convention, and I was 19 years old. I was a youth intern, and I grew up in a smaller town, and so we were taking our youth group to this big auditorium, this, this big basketball stadium in Dallas, Texas, and there were going to be 15,000 youth, and I was so excited to see, see like 15,000 young people coming to worship and hear the message. And, and, and we were shocked when the worship leader comes out, and it was a young woman completely wearing spandex. Now, worship leader and spandex, two things that should not go together, right? I'm so thankful that Stephen doesn't do that. And, and so, so what you immediately saw was, was, was kids, like they kind of were, they had their, their, you know, gaping mouths. You immediately saw people turning and it was totally distracting people from having their eyes on Jesus. And I remember different youth pastors going con and confronting this worship leader. She was actually the daughter of a worship leader, uh, I mean, of a youth pastor. And I remember worship, uh, the different youth pastors confronting that father and saying, like, what are you doing letting your daughter dress like that? It's totally inappropriate in this Christian conference. And he was like, hey, get off my back. This is just what people do, and this is the pop culture and sadly, within months, she had left being a Christian worship leader, become a secular artist. Not long after, she had a reality show. Not long after, she was getting a, a divorce. And soon, she had become known as a sex symbol in America, from a worship leader to a, a, a sex symbol. And it was, it was one of the first times I learned we, we can't mix love of the world with love for Jesus. I can't tell you how many pastors I've seen my age that are no longer running the race because they chased after fame or they chased after wealth or they ended up in an immoral relationship. Just this year, uh, a guy that I had really admired who had written a book about purity in relationships, it came out all over the news that he had recanted his faith as he had tried to be wise in this world. He was no longer following Jesus. Another famous worship leader who I had just listened to throughout my younger years just walked away from the Lord. The love of the world and the love of God doesn't flow together. It's the first enemy of revival. 
2 Corinthians 11, 2 and 3 says this, I'm jealous for you. This is the Apostle Paul talking to his people, talking to a church. He goes, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Have you ever seen a couple that's madly in love, like they can't take their eyes off of each other, and they're so full of joy, and they're just ooing and aahing, and the toughest guy is like, oh, my, my little baby, right? And, and, but it's beautiful because it's sincere and pure devotion, and that is how we are supposed to be with Jesus, and that's when we're fully alive, and that's when we live the the fullness of life like he promised. But you see, the enemy doesn't play fair, and so the, the, the serpent in the garden comes and says, hey, here's this fruit. It's pleasing to the eye. It's good for the taste. It'll give you worldly wisdom. And what happens? He never intends. The enemy's not compassionate. The enemy doesn't like you. He doesn't want to just give you a, a momentary pleasure. No, he intends to steal, kill, and destroy. So we think, I'm just going to flirt with sin. I'm just going to look at one little image. I'm just going to go and have one little make-out session. I'm just going to go and just take what little hit off this one little substance. Can I just tell you, the enemy's never content with that. He doesn't just let you put your toe in. He grabs your toe and pulls your whole body under until you're drowning. That's what he came to do. So that's why I love Ezra 4.3. you got to check this out. It says, but Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is one of my heroes. Maybe if I had a fifth child, that's what I'd name him. Hey, Hudson, Joshua, Zerubbabel. Um, Joshua, I, I settled for Joshua. Joshua and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us. Can I just tell you, someone in this generation needs to look at sin and say, you have no part with us. You have no part with us in building the temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Someone this, in this generation needs to stand up and say, hey, pornography, you have no part with us. Someone needs to stand up and say, hey, drugs, you have no part with us. Hey, cheating in school, you have no part with us. Hey, cheating on our taxes, you have no part with us. Hey, messing around, hey, adultery, you have no part with us. Can I just tell you, what I'm not saying is if you've sinned that you can't be a part of this church, because this church would be absolutely empty right now, including me. No, it, it's, God is gracious and compassionate. We are uh, uh, the fellowship of the forgiven. So all of sin, we all sin. It's not the sinner we need to hate, right? But here's what I'm afraid of. In this culture, we're so into tolerance that we won't even call out the sin. We're so concerned about people feeling love that we won't say, hey, your sexual immorality is wrong. Right? Your drugs are wrong. Your homosexual acts are wrong. We won't say that. And it's kind of like a parent who, I don't want to hurt my kids. So they're running into the street. A truck's coming, and you're like, but I could, I could bruise their little ego if I told them no. No! My kids are, I mean, I've had it happen. My kids are running out the street. I'm like, stop! I scream at them. Why? Because I want to spare their life. Someone in this generation needs to stand up and call sin a sin. Okay? You'll save someone's life. You'll save your own life, by the way. 
Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Can I just tell you that if you decide to follow God wholeheartedly, there's going to be actual people who oppose you. There's going to be actual people that come against you. In fact, one of the tests to see if you're really walking with Jesus is do you have people coming against you? Because the Bible says he who wants to live a righteous life will be persecuted. So maybe if you're not being persecuted, maybe it's because you're not living a righteous life. Ooh, I wish I could drop this mic right now. (laughs) Look at this. At the beginning of the reign of King Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Methrodath, Tabiel, and the rest of the associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic, listen to that, script, and in the Aramaic language, Rahum, the commanding officer, and Shimshay, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahum, the commanding officer, and Shimshay, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges, officials, administrators, over to the people from Persia, Uruk, and Babylon, the Elamites of Susa, and the other people from the great and honorable Asher, Benapal, deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in the trans-Euphrates. This is a copy of the letter they sent him. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants in the trans-Euphrates, the king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are uh, rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid. And eventually, the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we're under obligation to the palace and it's not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a a place with a long history of sedition. That is why the city was destroyed. We inform the king that if the city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in the trans-Euphrates. What's this all about? This is about some techniques of the enemy to keep you from doing the will of God. This is the enemy's opposition to a move of God. Let me pull out several of them very quickly. Number one, discouragement. The enemy will try to stop you through discouragement. Did you notice that this letter was written in Aramaic? Do you know who the letter was written to? It was written to a Persian king. Do you know that Persians don't speak Aramaic? So why was it written in Aramaic? The people wrote it in Aramaic so that the Hebrews that spoke Aramaic would hear it and be discouraged. Can I just tell you the enemy works overtime for you to hear discouraging things? You know, we as pastors, we have this this church with so many people in it, but the enemy always makes sure we hear about the one person that doesn't like us. And can I just tell you, that's not just a pastor, like that's you. All these people like you at your workplace, except Nancy. But you hear about Nancy. Negative Nancy doesn't like you. 
right? The enemy makes sure that you hear a discouraging word. Can I just tell you, that's why you need to be in this book every day, because this is full of encouraging words. You got to be in the Bible, people, because every day it'll renew your mind, because the enemy's working overtime to fill your mind with discouragement. That's why I'm so proud of you for being here week in and week out, because every week we're going to encourage you and tell you that God has plans for you to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. You need to hear the word of God over your life. Number two, he uses character defamation. Did you notice time and time again, they said, this rebellious city, this wicked city, all they were trying to do was to build a temple, right? I mean, what in the world? They're just trying to worship God and help people. It's, oh, that's so rebellious and wicked, me, right? The enemy loves to use character defamation. Can I just tell you that people are going to say all kinds of things about you if you walk with Jesus? Happy Sunday. Number three, fear and intimidation. Fear and intimidation, one of the greatest techniques. The Bible says the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking seeking who he may devour. The enemy makes sure that we hear that roar over and over and over again. But can I tell you, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Number four, tattletale. Um, This comes from the Hebrew word tetelius. Uh, just kidding. Um, I couldn't think of any other way to say it, but did you notice that they went to the king and they tattled? Can I just tell you, this is a technique of the enemy to, to always get people to go to your boss, to go to your teacher, and to try to get you in trouble, right? This is the way of the enemy. Can I tell you that God vindicates the righteous? The name of the Lord is a strong tower that the righteous can run into, and they are safe. Don't try to build your own faction. Trust the Lord to defend you. And lastly, frustration. The enemy tries to frustrate us, to, to, to get us to just throw up our hands and to say, you know what, I, I might as well just not do this. If you give up, the enemy wins, Don't give up. I'm talking to some of you today who you're about to walk away from the destiny of God and you are one step away from a breakthrough. In my uh, 20s, I led a a large college group in in Texas and we were experiencing a move of God. It was amazing. This, This one year, we took 600 college students on a mission trip to Juarez, Mexico. And we saw hundreds of people come to the Lord and saw miracles of every kind. And then we came back to our city and, and invited our friends. And there were 750 college students packing out a room where we told about the awesome things that God had done. And all these people got saved that night. And even we talked about miracles. And then we said, we're going to pray for the sick. And miracles started happening in the room. And I was thinking, this is unreal. This is what I live for. And that next week, someone comes out on campus and writes a, a, a character defamation article about me. It was called Six Questions for Robert Herbert. They even put a T on the end of my name. The most offensive thing you can do (laughs) to me. And it was just a bunch. It was six lies about me. They passed it out to 7,000 people and made a website just about me. All lies. It was so painful. It was an enemy of a move of God. So what do you do when someone comes to malign you, when someone comes to intimidate you, when someone tattletales on you, when, when someone comes and tries to get you to stop. 
This is what Jesus says, Matthew 5, 43. I don't think you'll like this. He says, you've heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, I actually like that one. But I tell you, oh, bummer. Love your enemies. Say, love your enemies. Okay, it's so easy to love this. Guys, we don't even love the Raiders, right? I mean, it's... It's so hard. Love you. And then he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You, can I just tell you, it's a great opportunity when people come and oppose you because it'll actually test what's really in you. One of the greatest ways that people can tell if you're a child of God is how you treat your enemies. How do you respond to your enemies? He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So, there is opposition anytime you're trying to do something with God. When we knew when we were starting the Light Project, which is building a building on the freeway, on, on, College, uh, on College Avenue and the freeway. We're just building a church. What is the church for? To help people, to love God, to serve people. We knew that there'd be opposition. We knew that there'd be enemies. And, and so what do you do? What do you do when people start opposing you? You know what we do? We get their names. And we get together and say, we're going to pray for these people. And we're going to pray blessing on these people. And so we actually, what we do is when someone comes against us, we take their name and we start praying for them by name that God would pour out his love, that he'd bless their marriage, he'd bless their family, he'd bless their finances. And then what do you do, Robert? And then we pray that we'd bless them some more. Right? We actually pray that God would overwhelm people with his goodness and his love. Right? That's what God says to do. Watch this. Ezra 4, 17 through 23. The king sent this reply. So remember, they sent the letter to the king, and it says the king then sends back this reply. To Rehum, the commanding officer, to Shimshay, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. Greetings. This letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. They were jerks. They didn't even send it in his language. They were just trying to discourage the Hebrews. It's been translated in my presence. I issued an order, and a search was made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem's had powerful kings ruling over the whole of trans-Euphrates, and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now, be careful not to neglect this matter. Oh, I'm sorry. Issue an order to these men to stop work. What? So that this city will not be rebuilt. What? Until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? As soon as a copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehum and Shimshay, the secretary of their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Can I tell you that sometimes the opposition, sometimes the persecution makes it appear that the work of God is stopped? This, this letter that was written about me and passed out all over campus, do you know what the result of it was? It cut our ministry by a third. We lost 14 of our small groups. So people said lies about me. People brought accusation. And what happened? A ton of people 
believed these falsehoods and just left. I'm like, God, not only are people attacking me, but now other people are just leaving. And they, but half of them believed me. The other half were like, I just don't want to be, you know, uh, seen with a controversial person. You know, I want to just be great in life. And, and so all of a sudden, it seems like instead of getting to steward this move of God, instead we're just trying to like keep the hemorrhaging from happening and, and all this pain and putting out fires. Guys, that was so painful. Do you know what I did? I was hurting. And, uh, you know, I didn't just say, hey, no big deal. No, I'm great, right? Just put on a happy face. You know, I, I, I got on my knees and, and I just, I took my pain to the Lord. And, and I'd, I'd be on my knees and I'd, I'd, I'd picture the cross before me and I'd take the weight of the pain and the maligning that I'd received and the accusation and I'd push it in my mind to the cross and say, Jesus, you didn't just take my sin, but you also took my pain. You died for my pain. You died for my shame and my sorrow. You know what else I did? I forgave the guys that were maligning me. Do you know what happened? One year later, I had both the guys that wrote the article contact me. They came into my office. I was like, well, what's this going to be about? And individually, both of them said, I am so sorry. God has convicted me. I was wrong. Could you please forgive me? You know what I said? Hey, I forgave you a year ago. You're already forgiven. Now, I did say, hey, what you did, I, I'm, I'm okay, but you hurt a lot of people. But you know what? God forgives you, and his mercies are new for you. You don't know what God's going to do. You don't know the end of the story. You don't know what God has planned for you. Here's the amazing thing. This is what the Bible says. This is what one of my mentors said to me in the midst of the pain. He said, Proverbs 16, 7 is the verse I have for you. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with them. What's your responsibility? You just keep serving God. You just keep pleasing the Lord, and God will take care of you. Oh, it was a very painful situation. But you know what? You have no idea. You might think, oh, this health situation, it's the end of me serving God. Can I just tell you, you don't know the rest of the story. Can I just tell you, you losing this job, you might think, well, that's just the end of my career. You don't know the rest of the God story. You might think this, this persecution in my family, my family is just going to be broken. You might think this relationship's about to be over. You don't know what God has in store for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Can I just tell you what happened just a few months ago? So I get this call from Audrey, my assistant, and she goes, there's a guy trying to get a hold of you. He says he really wants to talk to you. He's a Yale Seminary professor. And she said, this is his name. And I went, I remember that name. That's one of the guys that wrote the article. So I call him, and he goes, hey, Robert, um, do you remember me? Says his name. I was like, yeah, I do remember you. And he goes, "Um, I want to tell you uh, what happened to me after that. He said, I I went on, and, um, you know, I... I came against you 
because I didn't believe that God moved that way. I thought God just put the earth in motion and then he was a distant God. And so I went on to be a, the- a theology professor to, to write these kind of wrong thoughts that you preached. And I went and I was writing books and I was a professor at Yale. And he goes, and then I was stricken with an illness. And I couldn't even use my hand. So I, I'm a writer and I can't even write. And he goes, I got so desperate that I finally cried out to God. It's like, God, I don't even believe you'll do this, but I, I need a miracle. And he says, then I went to a vineyard church out of desperation and asked for prayer at the end, and I got healed. And he said, so then I realized this doesn't fit with my theology. I need to listen to teaching of someone who teaches from the Bible of how God still moves today, and I remembered you. So I've been listening to your messages every week. You don't know the rest of the story. You don't know what God's going to do. So my greatest opposition, my greatest persecutor became someone who listened to my teachings to get edified and encouraged. And he says, I've changed my writing as a Yale seminary professor to now talk about the power of the Holy Spirit in church history. God, praise God. You don't know what's going to happen to that boss that's making your life miserable because you're a Christian if you keep following Jesus. You don't know about that student who absolutely hates you because you stand for righteousness. They might become the next Paul the Apostle because of the way you respond and bless those who persecute you and pray for those who hate you. Can I just tell you, you don't know the rest of the story. God blew my mind this year by... Now, me having a friend who's a Yale seminary professor who's actually standing for the very things we taught and the very things he persecuted me for. Ezra 4.24. This is a bummer. This chapter doesn't end with a happy ending. It says, thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And when I read that this week, I thought, you know what? That's the question for us as the people of God. What are the ways that the work of God in our own life has come to a standstill because of the enemies of revival? What's the way that you were going with God, but discouragement, persecution, intimidation, tattletale, hate came against you and the work of God has stopped. You know, I, I, I just want to speak prophetically for the last couple minutes because I want to tell you what I believe are the greatest enemies of revival for this generation. These are what I believe. I know that there's other ones, but these are the ones I felt led to call out this morning. Here's the first one. I think the greatest revival uh, will be quenched if we don't deal with this one, and it's the desire for fame. Uh, there was a recent study just done of the millennial generation and it said, would you rather be a world influencer through being a CEO, a government leader, uh, uh, a leader in culture, or would you rather be a personal assistant of a celebrity? 80% said, I'd rather be an assistant to a celebrity. Why? We, we are enamored. The, the new love of money is the love of fame in this generation. 
Okay, and I'm not, I'm not just coming against, I'm not a millennial, I'm not coming against you. I've had to crucify that in myself. Can I just tell you, um, there's a thing called Instagram. Um, and so many people, uh, our lives are ruled by a desire to be known and be famous through it. In the old days, if you did this, if you took a picture of yourself doing this, people would have called you a poser. If a woman would have taken a picture like this, we would have said, like, you're a poser. Can I just tell you now everyone's posing? Um, what is that? That is, the Bible says, don't boast. Let another man praise you. But we have a, we're raising up a whole culture of people who praise themselves. Like, people are constantly trying to look a certain way, right, and trying to put this image forward and, and making people, um, can, can I just tell you that, that that is not helpful? The Bible says this. God says, I'm going to share my glory with no other. Uh, but we're trying to bring glory to ourselves. Uh, one of the things I did um, on my sabbatical is I was just like, you know what? I, I just want to be free. I, I, I want to just clear out the clutter. And so on the first day of my sabbatical, I, I took a picture of myself and posted it of me with this massive bass, like a boasting picture. I'm like, yeah, my bass is bigger than yours, right? And, um, and, and then I was like, what am I doing? What? And so I... I, I I decided I'm going to take these next two months and do an Instagram fast. Do you know what I realized? That I wasn't just fasting from Instagram. I was fasting from jealousy. Have you ever noticed, like, typically I look at Instagram, it doesn't bring me closer to Jesus. Instead, I just find myself jealous of your perfect lives. Like, how, how do you live at Disneyland? I have to work. But you're always, I'm like, what? You know what? And how do you look so good? Like, that's not great. And I just find myself jealous, and I'm coveting, right? And, and, and have you noticed that anyone else, hello, anyone, like, notice that Instagram usually doesn't lead you to the throne, right? It's, and, and, and here's, okay, so that's number one is the desire for fame. Number two, enemy of revival, uh, FOMO. Someone's got to say no to FOMO, Right? Right? Someone's got to say, we will, you, you're, not gonna, you're not coming with us, FOMO. Um, Instagram, uh, it just leads me into, into FOMO. I'm like, I am missing. I, I see people. I, I start wanting to do things that I don't even like. Because you look so good doing it. And I'm like, what? wait, you know, I never ride unicycles. And, <laughs> who cares? But all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm missing out. Unicycles, you know. And, um, I want a fluffy poodle. And uh, um, I, I talked to a, a friend, and it can even be spiritually. I talked to a friend, and he was so humble about this. He was like, hey, I, I really thought about moving up to Reading to be a part of Bethel, and I really thought about moving to Sacramento to be a part of Jesus culture because I just wanted to be in a revival. And he goes, I was flying home, and God just spoke to my heart. Uh, you're not called to chase revival. You're called to go home and dig your own wells of revival. We have a culture that we're always, you know, enamored by the next, the next thing, the next shiny thing. Can I just tell you, the grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is greenest where you stay and you water it. 
Here's the next one. You're not like this. Um, each week I've been highlighting a, a different revival from the past. And one of the revivals that I study the most is called the Jesus Movement. Uh, it happened in the late 60s to, through the 70s, and it happened here in Southern California. It was God's response to the hippie movement, the hippie movement where people were casting off restraint and saying, we're done with the trappings of America. And we just, we want to live free. We want to have our love fest. It was all about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And it started to destroy lives. And so God answers with this thing called the Jesus movement. And so hippies started getting radically saved. And one of the ones who got most transformed and started being used by God like crazy was this guy who had been all into drugs and into crazy lifestyle named Lonnie Frisbee. And God rocks his life and he becomes this bold evangelist. I just want to take one minute for you. I don't even have time. Bummer. Let me just show you some pictures. Let me just show you some pictures of what was going on. There he is. Looks like Jesus. There's the other guy. Looks like me that's gained a lot of weight. And uh, look at this next picture. Look at this next picture. Okay. That is what I'm dreaming of. Thousands of people coming to our beaches to be baptized. This is a massive baptism service. So many people getting radically saved. Look at this next picture. This is him baptizing someone. It's so beautiful. This guy was you. The power of God was on him. All kinds of miracles. He led to the Lord a guy named Greg Laurie who leads the Harvest Crusades throughout America, leads one of the biggest churches in America. He went up to him, boldly preached the gospel. Greg Laurie cratered. I have a friend that saw it. Cratered, weeping, gave his life to Jesus. Can I tell you, this guy was used by God like few others. But he didn't say no to sexual sin. And he died an early death of AIDS. Can I just tell you, sexual immorality and pornography will destroy the move of God in this generation. And can I tell you, you have power through the Holy Spirit to say no. People say, well, how do I say no? How do I walk out of that sin? The same way you walked into it, step by step. You made a decision to look at one image, then you make a decision to say no to the next. You made a decision to just have one sexual image experience, and it just got more and more and more. How do you get out of it? You just keep saying no moment by moment by moment and saying yes to Jesus, and he will give you power to overcome. You are not a slave to sin. God has given you power greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And last one, last enemy of revival. I call it our fast-paced culture. Now, what I'm not saying is that we all need to move out to Julian and make our own butter and live on a farm. What I'm saying is this, that there's never been a generation who can satisfy their boredom and their loneliness every instant through this. I, the other day, I was leaving the room and I grabbed my phone from my 10-year-old and he freaked out and said, Dad, I won't have anything to do for the next 20 minutes. And you laugh, but you're just as guilty. It's not just 20 minutes, it's two minutes. The second we get bored, we pull this up. It, why? Because you have a constant need for information. You have a constant need for entertainment. You have a constant need for companionship. Can I just tell you who put that constant need in you? 
Jesus himself, and it will only be fulfilled in him. But you have to wait, and you have to put this down, and you have to go in your apartment or your house and not turn on the TV, not turn on, the, on social media. You have to get in your car and just sit in the silence in that uncomfortable moment and just say, Jesus, I need you. Like, you're the one who will fulfill me. And you know what? When that happens, when a people stop just going to instantaneous pleasures and instead start calling out to God, they get revived. And revived people start revivals. Why don't we stand up? Would you just stand up? Lord Jesus, would you speak to each one of us in this moment what the greatest enemy to the work of God is in our life? Would you just take one moment to search your heart and to respond? Just talk to God in the privacy of where you're standing. Just repent. You know, repentance leads to freedom, which leads to joy. And it leads to the fullness of life. What's the greatest enemy that's blocking you from the move of God in your life. Oh, Father, we want to be a free people. I want to be a free child so I can run up to you with nothing in my arms and let you just sweep me off my feet, take me into your Father's arms of love. God, we put down our idols. And Lord, every way that people, enemies, have come against us, we bless them today. We forgive them today. No one's going to own us. Our anger, our hurt, our pain is not going to own us. Every person that needs to forgive someone today, let them forgive them today. Bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping someone else dies. We choose not to drink the poison of bitterness and pain from bosses, teachers, and coaches, friends. We love you, Jesus. We love you. We trust you. We thank you for this word. In Jesus' name.